Who are the spiritual examples in your life? Who are those who have modeled faithfulness to God that you might learn from them and follow in their footsteps? I hope that you've had such influence in your life. Um, I know I have, and I know that I certainly would not be the man that I am today if it weren't for these people. Um, I am one blessed to have grandparents and, and even immediate parents who modeled faithfulness to Christ. Um, I can specifically look to my dad as one who modeled to me a sensitivity to his own sin, but yet was confident in the grace of God. I can look to a man named Robbie, who was one of the first men to personally read and study and memorize the Bible with me. He also gave me an example to follow in following Jesus' command to make disciples. He's the first person who introduced me to such a concept. I can think of Curtis, who modeled to me a steady, faithful preaching of God's word. I can think of Dane, who I actually met in Panera Bread as a college student. Uh, as I was processing aspirations and a desire to go into ministry, he encouraged me with the word of God. He said, fan into flame the gift of God. These are Paul's direct words to a young and timid and growing man named Timothy. I can also think of a man named Dave who taught me what a pastor is, who encouraged me to memorize a passage of scripture that we're going to study today, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. If that's a pastor, if we want to understand what a pastor is, that verse tells us, and Dave led me there. So these men, uh, in the few weeks, will be those who serve on my own ordination council. I'm grateful to have them do that. And they have been examples of God's faithfulness to me. Who are those people for you? I hope you can think of someone. Um, and if you can't, I want you to know that you're not alone in that. And in fact, if you can't think of anyone, I would love to personally connect you with someone here at Beacon. There's a lot of people who would be delighted to help you follow Jesus and to have a good example to follow. Those are necessary in our life. But as I think about the best examples of Christian faithfulness in my life, they're the ones who particularly cared for me. And each of their care looked different, but I knew that they cared for me in that they led me into God's word again and again. And that's what our passage is about today. We see here in this passage an example of faithful teaching and modeling for others a care for the church of God. And dear friends, we must, as Christians, care for the church of God. We must spiritually care for one another. And in our passage this morning, that's what we'll see. So we'll be in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are hardback black Bibles all around you, pew Bibles. On those Bibles, you can find this passage on page 929. So Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it's on page 929. Now today, I'm not going to read the entire passage at the beginning, but I'm going to read just a little bit along as we go, okay? Uh, I find it helpful in my own mind to try to work out the main point of a passage in a sentence, very short. Um, maybe some of you do as well. So here's the main point of the passage. And I hope as I preach, it's also the same point of the sermon, which is how our sermons should be here at Beacon. It's simply this. Elders 
care for the church of God through their example, their attentiveness to the flock, and their hope in God and his word. I'll repeat that. Elders care for God's church through their example, their attentiveness to the flock, and their hope in God and his word. Now, this passage does speak directly to elders of a congregation. Now, I mentioned in the, in the main point that elders are referenced here, but this passage is written in Scripture for all of us. So we can all open the Bible and read this. This isn't just for elders alone. Each of us have a responsibility as Christians to care for one another, to be an example for one another. Now, as we approach this passage, we'll see that it's structured in a particular kind of way. So we'll see it has an opening setting, it has an extended speech, and then it has a concluding send-off. Now, the bulk of this passage is there in the middle, the extended speech, so much of our content will be found there. It's also worth noting that this passage that we're about to read today and work through, it's one passage that there's really no other text in the Bible like it. Uh, And here's what I mean by that. It's quite extraordinary. In the book of Acts alone, it is the only extended speech that Paul gives to other Christians. Second, in the New Testament, it's the only place that Paul directly speaks to the church's elders. And three, this is actually pretty neat. We read here some of Jesus' words that he apparently legitimately said, but they're not recorded in any of the Gospels. We'll see that in this passage. So hopefully that piques your interest a bit. And we'll start out in the setting in verse 17. This is just the setting, just setting up what's going on here. So Luke writes in verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, a city we just talked about, and called the elders of the church to come and meet him. Now this is Paul, who's recently been on his, or he is in the middle of his third missionary journey, and he's mainly revisiting many of the areas that he's already been to previously. He's ministered in these places, and he's seen many churches planted there. Earlier in Acts, we see that Paul is Jesus' apostolic delegate. So he appeared to Paul powerfully and gave him a specific mission to carry the gospel among the Gentiles. Now, these would have just been non-Jewish people among the nations. He was to proclaim the gospel to these people. And here, he returns to many of them because they actually believed. They started to gather together as churches. And he wants to encourage them and offer them some serious and final words because he sees himself nearing the end of his own life. Therefore, this meeting is urgent. He calls for the elders. Now, these men would have been the official leaders of the church in Ephesus. So these elders set out on a journey. Now, for them, from Ephesus to Miletus is four days, if you're going by land on foot. So this was no ordinary journey for them, and it was not certainly not an ordinary teaching that they would hear. Apparently, as soon as these elders arrive there in Miletus, Paul directly begins to teach them. Okay, so that's the setting. Here's the speech. We see this in verses 18 through 35. So we arrive at this section. And here we'll see three things in the passage. We're going to see Paul's example, Paul's charge, and then Paul's commendation. Those will help to structure our time together in this passage. So in telling these men to care for their own church, he recounts his own example to them. He gives them a charge for future ministry. And he commends them to the most important means of grace for doing the work of God. Okay, so first we see Paul's example. And we'll read this in verses 18 through 25. Paul's 
example. Now, Paul certainly saw certain elements of his life, and he's telling these elders about them because they are indeed exemplary. Now, I'm going to suggest here that Paul was exemplary in some very particular ways. He's not Jesus, he's not God, but he can look back to particular points of obedience in his life and point them to model after him, to imitate him in this kind of life. Now, these are the ways, as he's speaking to elders, that we, as elders, men, should follow, okay? But any church member should as well, and I, sh- I believe you should be able to see that as we work through the text. So first, we see Paul's example in his faithful ministry. Paul's example in his faithful ministry, and this is particularly in verses 18 through 21. Luke writes, And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I stepped foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul was faithful in his personal ministry, and he particularly focuses on the how of his ministry to others. How did he actually do his ministry? He says, you know how I live among you. This describes He describes this for us in verse 19. He was a servant of the Lord, and he served with humility, and we see through tears, things like distress and anguish and sorrow. Brothers and sisters, this should make it abundantly clear to us that serving Jesus must be done with humility, not with an arrogant pride, not solely with gifted brilliance, and not with an attitude that's prone to poke and prod on other people's imperfections. Servants of Jesus must be humble. That's what we learn from Paul here. Now, Jesus himself gave us an example of this in his own life. The sign of his greatness was not what the world would expect, a political kingdom perhaps becoming popular and recognized among people or having innumerable material resources that people would look to today as someone who's influential. No, the sign of Jesus' greatness was not that, but his sign of greatness was actually stooping down to wash his disciples' feet. I've heard it asked, if I only had one day left to live on this earth, what would I do? And what would you do? One day left in this life, what are you going to do? Most of us would probably respond with something like, I'm going to go to Disney World and I'm going to enjoy life for a moment. Um, Or you might say, I'll eat however many sweets I want to because this body is about to be done, regardless of how much sweets I eat. We ponder these kinds of questions. But when Jesus knew that his final moments were coming, do you know what he did? Jesus washed feet. May we, with our lives and our ministries, serve others in the same way that Jesus served. We have been served by Jesus in this way, and it was an example to his followers of the time. That's an example of humility. But Paul was also faithful in his public and corporate ministry. He was bold and gospel-focused, particularly in his preaching and teaching. Look in verse 20. He did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable. When it says he didn't shrink, that means he did not at once hesitate to share 
any truth in his teaching. Paul was bold because he wanted his teaching to benefit those who heard him. Now, what an odd thing to hear, particularly in a self-serving culture where leaders would have expected a following. They would have wanted people to follow him. He's preaching to them to benefit them. He says, I want to benefit you more than I want you to benefit me. Now, that's an example of a leader. He did this everywhere. He did this in synagogues and marketplaces and houses. Anywhere and everywhere, people would hear him teach. And notice what he preached as he did these things. He preached the gospel. Now, this is the beautiful truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And what kind of response does he demand of people from such a message? What does God demand of people from such a message? Well, it's simply this, repentance and faith. We see this here in the passage, and we've also seen it earlier in Acts. After Paul declared the gospel in Acts chapter 2, those who heard Jesus, heard the message of Jesus, it says, were cut to the heart. When they heard the message of sin and salvation and they recognized what was going on by their sin, putting Jesus on the cross, they were cut to the heart because they knew that they deserved the judgment of God for all their wrongdoing. And they simply said, brothers, what are we to do about this? And Peter would respond, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what they heard. So friends, can I ask you this morning, have you been cut to the heart by the reality of Jesus' death on the cross? Have you realized that it was your sin that put him there? If you're a Christian, it is still helpful to remember this reality and to recognize that Jesus' death paid for your sins. But if you're with us this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you have not been cut to the heart by this reality, you can this morning respond in repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus. Today's a new day. This offer is open to anyone who would come. You can be saved today. That very reality is ongoing. So now, even now, you can do so. You can call out to Jesus and he will save you. But notice in this passage what repentance is. Repentance is the turning away from our sin and turning to God in a life of obedience to him. But notice how Paul says it here. Repentance is not simply just turning. It's turning turning in a particular direction. Look at what he says. It is repentance toward God. Now, in accepting the gospel message, we acknowledge the Godwardness of our rebellion. We recognize and genuinely regret not just a general state of brokenness that we're all in, that we're simply bad people. That's good to recognize because that's what the Bible teaches. But we must also recognize and genuinely regret our rebellion against God, the one who created us. And then... Faith is therefore putting your full trust in the fact that Jesus is Lord and that he has died for your sins and risen three days later to triumph over all of your sin and to allow you to walk in a new life. That's the message of Paul's example in his faithful ministry. But Paul was also an example in following God through difficulty. 
Paul was an example in following God through difficulty. We see this in verses 22 to 23. Now, just to be clear for you note takers, this is a sub point under the first one. Okay, so another sub point. So Paul was an example in following God through difficulty. We see this in verses 22 to 23. He says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, these verses show the prospects of Paul's ministry as he proceeds toward Jerusalem. The only thing he knows about his future is that imprisonment and inflictions are coming. Here, Paul is an example in following God through the most difficult circumstances in life. Following Jesus led to persecution for Paul. He would preach the gospel and it led to persecution. Now for us, difficulties can take many different forms, can't they? But for our faith, Jesus particularly said that persecutions would come. And yet, he said he would be with us, even as we undergo such things. And like Paul, when we undergo these these kinds of circumstances, we can take one step at a time through our difficulties, through the strength that comes from the Holy Spirit alone. He can guide us through our difficulties. And Paul is a remarkable example of courage in the midst of his own difficulties. But Paul was also an example in other ways. He was an an example in aiming with his life to finish well. We see this in verse 24. He was an example in aiming to finish well, finish his life well. He wanted his life and his faith to endure to the end. He wasn't satisfied with just doing good for a particular moment in his life. He wanted to endure all the way to the end. And how exactly would he have the courage to persevere through such difficulty in his life, to complete his life and know that he had succeeded? Well, verse 24 says, But I do not count my life as of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish the course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here, Paul is doing a contrast. He's contrasting the difficulty of his future prospects in ministry with a resolute trust in who he knows God is. He has been informed by the Holy Spirit that the future is going to be difficult. But even in the difficulty, he aims to finish well by trusting in Jesus. Now, what a powerful statement. I'll just read this again. I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Now, Paul is saying that Jesus is more precious to him than his own life. A missionary to India and China and to Africa A man named C.T. Studd would similarly say this, If Jesus be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus died for me and he is God, then no sacrifice can be too great for me as I go after him. What kind of place does Jesus have in your life? Could you say these same words that Paul says here? Now, I think we can all be challenged by such a statement. But the way to finish this life well is to value Jesus more than our life. That's how we finish well. 
But finally, Paul is an example in another way. He's an example in trusting God's plan. Paul is an example in trusting God's plan. We see this in verses 25 through 27. He says, And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's example, he is an example in trusting God's plan. So here it becomes clear that Paul's speech is not just simply a speech. It is a farewell address to these faithful elders that he is teaching. He knows that he will never again see these dear friends of his. Yet he trusts God's plan for himself and for them. God's plan for Paul was to proclaim the kingdom of God, the full gospel message, and he was faithful to do so. He declared all of the gospel, holding back none of it. He declared the whole counsel of God. That is, he said everything necessary for people to know about God's kingdom and his grace in the gospel. This is why he could be confident. And he could particularly be confident of his innocence toward those who do not believe. He fulfilled the requirement of God to speak to those who do not know the gospel. And now it was on them to consider for themselves and to respond. This is a heavy passage. Paul made a similar charge of being innocent of blood in Acts 18, verse 6, to the Corinthians. There and here, Paul's using some Old Testament imagery. He's picking it up from the prophet Ezekiel. So just as Ezekiel was what he called a watchman for the people, Paul was a watchman for the people of Corinth and Ephesus. Jesus had sent Paul to warn the wicked of their ways and that their lives may be saved. Paul was the instrument that God used to warn them. Now, if they decided to reject this message, he was therefore not responsible for what might happen to them in their condemnation. That's what Paul's saying here. So brothers and sisters, God's plan for us is to do the same work, same work that Paul did to declare the whole counsel of God through your personal evangelism, through you going and sharing the gospel with others, through our public worship gatherings. Hopefully, by God's grace, we are teaching the whole counsel of God so that there will be no surprises when you get to the last day and God's standing there. There should be no surprises if we stick to God's word. So we're seeking to be faithful to this. Now, we must trust this, that this is God's plan, and we must follow Paul's example in this. That's for us as a church. But friends, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself that. The imagery here is meant to shake you. Paul says that he is innocent of the blood of all. The judgment of God is no thing to be trifled with. You will stand before him, and you will give an account for your response to his dying love for you. And your sin will be paid for, either by Jesus' death on the cross or by you in eternal judgment. So my encouragement, anyone here, is to not let that happen. Don't wait to respond. Paul is an example and that he held out his life and example to the Ephesian elders. 
And your example as a person matters too. Friends, never underestimate the power of your personal life to influence and inspire another person positively for God. You can do this. Anyone and everyone is an example to someone. Paul would tell Timothy exactly this. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. So even if you're young, you are an example to someone. So Paul says, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So no matter who you are, be mindful that people are watching. We are all examples to the younger ones among us. And the question today is, what kind of example are they getting from you? Now, brother elders, there's a few of us in the room. The writer of Hebrews would then speak to the church. And he would say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. That's the easy part, standing up here and preaching. It's difficult in ways, but the more difficult part is what he tells them to do after. Writer of Hebrews says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So are we as elders recognizing that it's not just Paul who's the one who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but particularly the leaders in the church. These are recognized elders. And I'll just say, any other mature Christian in the room, you are a particular example of Christ to those around you. What do people see as the outcome of your life? So by God's grace, we can all be examples of faithfulness as we exemplify our reliance on God and his word. We can do this. We can be solid examples, even as Paul was himself. That's Paul's example. Now we get to Paul's charge. This is the second point, Paul's charge. We see this in verses 28 through 31. So now we're making a little shift here. Paul begins to exhort the elders on their present and their future task, what they're supposed to do. Now, in light of the example of his life, he charges them to continue the ministry that he began. As he leaves, they must consider how to faithfully minister to God's church. Paul's charge to the, present, to the elders in the present situation is this. Care for the church of God. Care for the church of God. Verse 28 says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, elders at Beacon, this verse is written specifically to us. It's unique. I told you this passage is unique in all the Bible, and I think this is appropriate. It's a central charge of God to people that lead. We must be those who care for the church of God, and Paul made it clear that we must do this in an urgent way. He says we must guard ourselves and all God's flock. Later, he's going to say, because sheep-eating wolves are coming. We must be alert to these things. We must be vigilant and prepared when these things happen. Now, we do this first by carefully attending to ourselves. We are first responsible for our own souls before God. And we ought not to skip over this too quickly. As elders, we're to guard our own spiritual lives. And church family, you should know this about us as well. We should guard our self-discipline. 
our desires, our thoughts, our prayers, our obedience to God's word. Richard Baxter was a well-known Puritan, wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. And he said this to the men that he was teaching. He said that Satan has a special eye on the leaders of the church. He said, take heed to yourselves because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you. Brothers, we need each other in this task. And church family, we need you to pray for us as we do our very best to care for you and for our own souls. After caring for ourselves, we care for the flock. That is our church family. And this church family is, first of all, Paul is clear, it's God's possession with Jesus as the chief shepherd. Jesus charged Peter in John chapter 21. He said, tend my sheep. These people are his. And we are simply, as elders, Jesus' under-shepherds. And we likewise seek to tend, to care for these sheep because, look at what he says, they are beloved and purchased by God. Members of Beacon, this passage is also written for you. And it includes all of us who have responded to God with repentance and faith. Did you, not, did you know that you don't just belong to Jesus? You have been purchased by Jesus. He obtained you, not with blood that would cost him nothing, but by his very life that cost him everything. Jesus said in John chapter 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. If you are a Christian here today, Jesus laid down his life for you, and he purchased you. That's who you are. And as elders at Beacon, I think it's helpful for us to be clear about what we are to do in serving you. So we seek to do these things as best as we possibly can. And here's some things that we as a church seek to do as those members of our church are underneath our care. We seek to do these things, to gather with you individually and corporately. We do that here. We try to do that individually. We try to share meals with you. Amen? We love food, or at least I do. Maybe someone else does. I know Aaron Gray does. <laughs> we want to know your family circumstances so that we can pray for you regularly. We meet every month as elders to pray for you. If we don't know the circumstances of your life, we don't know how to pray for you. So we want to pray for you. We want to recognize cultural pressures that confront you in your daily lives. What's going on at work? What's going on with your kids at school? What are the pressures that you feel? Because we are the ones who are supposed to pray for you. We want to encourage you, to comfort you, to counsel you, and correct when needed. It's part of our task. It's what Jesus told us to do. We want to teach you God's word, and we want to love you as best as we can as our own family. Now, many of us don't have family living nearby. We are each other's family. We want to do that as a church family and model that. Now, as elders, we might be imperfect, but we know that you aren't Beacon's property. You are property of the Good Shepherd 
And because of that, you deserve our best efforts. So please pray for us as we do this. Paul then makes a second charge to the elders. And this is pointing toward their future task, what they're supposed to do. Here's the heading for this one. Fierce wolves are coming, guard the flock. Fierce wolves are coming, guard the flock. So as members, as Christians, we are sheep. And elders are given the task of guarding. Look in verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, he's using this imagery of a wolf. Now, wolves are fierce. They are vicious animals, and they seek to tear their prey to pieces. Wolves come, according to this passage, from outside the church as well as inside the church. Now, here in verse 29, we see them coming in among the church. So they're coming from outside, inside. In verse 30, we see them arising from within. Look at what it says. And from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So you see what's going on. There's people who are coming in and there's people inside who are speaking twisted things, seeking to draw them away. Now these wolves and these men speaking twisted things are recognized as false teachers. In Paul's day, wolves were people like this. They were government persecutors. They sought to stop people from turning from Roman religion and from emperor worship. That was common at the time, and we saw it in Ephesus as we were traveling. It's everywhere. These, these uh, monuments to emperors that were meant to be worshipped there. So the government would persecute Christians who took people away from doing that. There were also Judaizers. Now, we read about these in Acts, but those were the ones who taught a type of salvation that was based on your works. So holding to the Pentateuch. If you messed up at any point, you were wrong. There were also those who were polytheists, and they, assist, they insisted that you worshipped a lot of different gods. Now, within the church, there were a different set of people. There were those who twisted Scripture. We call them Scripture twisters. They distorted the orthodox doctrine. So they would teach things such as Jesus never actually took on human flesh. So they're twisting the scriptures to say what they want it to say. There were also sheep stealers, we could say. They wanted to draw away disciples after themselves. Now perhaps these were someone who was like a charismatic leader who had a lot of gifting. And rather than seeking to serve people in ministry, they were trying to call them out of the church to begin following them. You see what's going on. They care more about their own recognition than they do about the well-being of people. In all of these situations, inside and outside, Paul was telling the Ephesian elders to be alert to these types of false teachings and to be diligent in teaching against them. So today, there are false teachings, but they're different. But they still continue. Now from the outside, we still have wolves that we might call secularism through things such as the internet, through social media, movies, advertising, schools, and books, they push their secular pressure. And we feel this pressure all around. Now, some particular ways that they do this. 
They want you to conform to the culture's understanding of things like morality, sexuality, gender identities, marriage, truth, and the secular creed on yard signs that we see everywhere. Now, as Christians, we have to think clearly about these things, okay? The Bible is our ultimate authority regardless of what anyone says. The Bible is our ultimate authority. And as we live our lives, we must not become desensitized to the building pressure all around us. Rather, we should take the advice of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, do not be conformed to this world. Or as J.B. Phillips says, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. We need to be witnesses in the midst of this world. Paul says we are to be the aroma of Christ to the world. We speak the truth in love. We don't conform to untruth in ignorance. Now, within the church, we have our problems too. Some reframe their own truth by using biblical terminology that is actually foreign to the Bible. So I have all kinds of conversations in evangelistic settings for this, but I'll just highlight one. Um, One such doctrine is a gospel that includes no cross. Jesus didn't actually die on the cross for anybody's sins. So preachers of this kind of gospel would say that there indeed is no sin nature in humans. Therefore, no need for an atonement for their sin, and therefore there would be no reason for an eternal judgment. But friends, while this gospel might be socially acceptable, it puts no pressure on us as people. It is foreign to the Bible. Jesus did die on the cross for sins. So we must be aware of these things, and we must denounce those types of things as twisted. Now, Paul concludes his charge in verse 31. He says this, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So even in the midst of such hard realities, cultural pressures, wrong teaching, hear Paul's words here. He didn't do this as a bigot. He's doing this as a heartfelt concern because he cared for people. Now may we, as a church, do so as well. May we care for one another from the depths of our heart. Amen? Number three. Paul's commendation near the end of his speech, verse 32 through 35. So finally, after seeing Paul's example and his charge, we read of his commendation. Now, this is what he commends as practices among the elders in verses 32 through 35. He says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have showed you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Here, Paul commends the elders to God and his word. This helps the church and the elders to see that the survival of the church is not based on Paul, but it's based on God and his word. The elders are now entrusted with a task to care 
and protect. But God and God alone is sufficient for something like this. There's no amount of human effort that can sufficiently care for the soul of another. No amount of human effort and intellect can be informed with every threat to the body of Christ. We need God. And thankfully, God in his word says he is the keeper and protector of his church. Paul would have fully believed what Psalm 121 verses 3 through 5 say. It says, he who keeps you will not slumber, but he who keeps Israel, and in our case the church, will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. We are insufficient, but God through his word gives grace. He builds us up and promises us an inheritance. We are fully and totally reliant on God and his word to sustain us. And God has given us both his presence and his word. So church family, let's stick to those things. God and his word. In conclusion, Paul also commends the elders to integrity in financial matters. And he also exhorts them uh, to support the weak. Uh, just in short, Paul did not see people as dollar signs. That's what he's telling the elders here. He had no desire for material profit if it hindered his gospel ministry. Money was not his motivation. His, he points to his life, particularly points in his life, to warn the elders about the sin of greed. Now, the temptations of money, pride, power, and sex can attack just about anyone. He wants them to be aware of these things. So we must be diligent as elders, as church members, to fight against these kinds of things. Paul commended these elders to focus on the necessities. What he's looking at, his own life. He's focused on his own necessities as well as the good of these people's souls. So we ought to follow Paul's example here, even if it presses against us. We should check our hearts. After all, Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of all evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we must not forget that money, though a blessing from God, can also pierce your soul if you love it. The weak in this passage are simply those who have particular prominent needs due to age, sickness, disability, poverty. Uh, they might be those weak in the church, have a weak conscience on a Christian ethical issue or a matter of Christian doctrine. But Paul reminds them and us to never neglect anyone in the church. We must work hard in serving everyone. To illustrate the point, what Jesus himself said, it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. And so Paul commends the elders to God and his word to beware of greed and to help the weak. In this speech, overall, we've seen three things. Paul's example, his charge, his commendation to build up the elders in Ephesus. And we have a lot to chew on after reading this passage, don't we? Now, finally, we see a send-off verse 36 through 38. It's a solemn send-off. Luke writes, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. 
and they accompanied him to the ship. This was a tearful separation. But Paul was not a lonely pastor at the top of an organizational pyramid. He was deeply acquainted with his people. He had close and intimate relationships with them. He had a bond with his elders. He loved them, and they loved him in return. They had served with each other for three years in the midst of joys and celebrations, seeing many people come to faith as well as in the heartaches and the pains of life. But even as he leaves, we see a beautiful picture of church family here in this passage. We see a band of brothers in leadership here. They inspire each other, and they develop a deep, substantive relationship. Now this, we read here at the send-off, is a model for how a church ought to love and care for one another. This is a model for how not just the church acts, but how leaders ought to act with one another. This is how leadership is done rightly in substantive relationships. So friends, in conclusion, I hope you've seen how elders care for the church through their example, through their attentiveness to the flock, and their hope in God and his word. And I hope that you've also seen that in this teaching of Paul, exclusive to elders, but it's also available to any Christian who would follow. So now I'll leave you with a question. What kind of example will you now be for someone else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, even when it challenges and cuts against our natural way of thinking, Lord God, we want to be faithful to you. Lord, I pray for the leaders of this church. Pray for myself, the other elders. Lord, you help us to be faithful to this charge. Lord God, would you help us as a church family to love and to care for one another. And Lord, would you empower us all to be good examples of faithfulness to God, to other Christians, to those in our families, to those in our workplaces, and to all who would see our life. Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of the opportunities that you place in front of us. Lord, help us. We know that you are our keeper and protector, and we thank you that you have purchased us by your own blood. In Jesus' name, amen.